Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. You're listening to SoundSide. I'm Libby Denkman. For marginalized communities, especially ones with whom trust has been broken for a long time, it's easier for people to slip through the cracks. Often the safety nets that are meant to protect them don't activate properly. In this story, those safeguards missed a teenager named Kit Nelson Mora. There were no police on the case, no news reporters shoving cameras in family members' faces, no detectives scavenging for clues. There was only Amethyst McCart, a 17-year-old high school senior, riding shotgun in her grandma's white 2004 Oldsmobile, her grandma at the wheel and her cousin in the back seat. It was September 2022, and 10 months had passed without anyone hearing from Kit Nelson Mora, McCart's childhood best friend. McCart decided to drive 200 miles from Yakima, where she and Kit grew up, through central Washington in search of her friend. After four hours of rolling hills and tense silence, the three-person search party arrived in OMAC, bordering the Colville Reservation, where Kit, who uses they-them pronouns, had moved to stay with their mom the year before. That's Investigate West reporter Kelsey Turner reading from a recent story that she reported. Washington state has one of the highest number of cases of missing and murdered indigenous people in the country, according to the Urban Indian Health Institute. And Kit is one of those missing people. We don't know what's happened to them or where they are. State and federal officials have been trying to combat this trend. Washington has even created the first missing indigenous persons alert system in the country. But as Kelsey reports, those systems and safety nets are only as useful as the people who uphold them. I sat down with Kelsey to learn more about Kit and how a child can go missing in this state. Kit's friends and family describe them as a very kind-hearted, loving individual. Um, Kit loves to draw, um, was very into drawing anime. They love music, love to sing. Um, Generally, Kit's friends describe them as a introverted, shy kid. Um, they would have turned 18 in April of last year. And they grew up in Yakima. They grew up with their great-grandparents. What was the situation at home like? So Kit um, was originally born to their mother, Lori Sue Nelson, um, and lived with Lori Sue Nelson until they were three years old. Nelson lost custody of Kit due to issues of domestic violence in the home. And so Kit went to live with their great grandparents in Yakima. And once Kit arrived in Yakima, their great grandparents described them as being very, very quiet at first. Um, but once they were in Yakima, they had really a very stable life, and so they grew up with their older sister, Charlotte, who was adopted as well, um, acted as, as an older sister to Kit. Yeah, and so from, from then until their sophomore year of high school, they had basically a normal childhood in Yakima, and when they were a sophomore in high school is when their biological mom Lori Sue Nelson started reaching out to them, wanting to reconnect. And so the sophomore year of high school is when 
Kit moves from Yakima back to Omak, where Lori Sue Nelson is living. Um, and we don't have a lot of information about what Kit's life was like living with Lori, but family members had suspicions about some issues that they were likely dealing with living with Lori and Lori's uh, much younger children. Um, what did they tell you about that situation, about what they believed was going on? So basically, Kit had been questioning their gender identity from a young age. And it was something that was something in, in Yakima that was a point of difficulty for them just in school, in their home life. They didn't feel comfortable coming out to a lot of their close family or people in the community. And they only came out to their close friends that they were asexual and aromantic and preferred to use they, them pronouns and to go by the name Kit instead of their legal name. So one thing when Kit's mom reached out to them, Lori Sue Nelson was um, pretty clear about the fact that she would be accepting of of Kit's gen- gender identity, according to Kit's friends. And so that that was another point that made Kit's friends seem like it would be possibly a good thing to do, to go live with their mom, to kind of connect with that side of themselves, and to get to know their mom better, because it had been most of their life apart from their mom. But when Kit got to OMAC, Nelson's tolerance of Kit's gender identity seemed to wane pretty quickly. So on social media, on Twitter, for example, also just in the photos that Nelson was sending to Kit's other family members, showed Kit dressing more and more like a girl, having a different haircut. And it seemed very out of character to Kit's friends and family And Kit was posting on Twitter about not feeling accepted there. And so it seemed basically to Kit's friends and family that Nelson wanted Kit there as a free babysitter, more or less. Um, Nelson has four very young children. And so Kit was spending a lot of time taking care of those kids. And that could be seen in Kit's text messages and social media posts and from what they were saying to their friends. And so Kit seemed very overwhelmed living at their mom's house between taking care of the kids, also working at a thrift store that Nelson owned, and eventually starting school there as well. And so they they were juggling a lot of things. Yeah. And this was supposed to be just a visit. You know, that Kit was supposed to have gone from Yakima to OMAC, and it was going to be a temporary stay. And Kit's great-grandparents had assumed that they were going to move back and be in Yakima again. Um, But that stay continued to extend and extend. And then friends and family began hearing some more unpleasant things that Kit was going through while they were in OMAC. Your story begins with Kit's friend, Amethyst McCart driving for hours from Yakima to Omak to find out what had happened to Kit. Kit had stopped posting on social media. Kit had stopped being on the phone or texting friends and family. And when Amethyst arrives in Omak in September of 2022, she finds that the police department in Omak 
hadn't even been aware of Kit's disappearance. Quote, no one was looking for Kit. How can this be? I mean, how does a kid go missing without authorities being alerted? That was one of the main questions I was trying to answer when I was reporting on this case. And in this instance, the last time Kit's family and friends heard from them was in November 2021. And so it was basically early November that Kit stopped texting their friends and family. They dropped off of social media. And at first, Kit's friends and family thought maybe they just need space to get to know their mom. They also weren't on great terms with Kit's mom. And so Kit's friends and family thought maybe Nelson just doesn't want to talk to us um, and we'll give them the space. But then over time, they started getting more alarmed. And so about three weeks after Kit stopped responding to texts and dropped off of social media, Kit's older sister, Charlotte, reached out to the OMAC police department asking to to check on Kit. And so a police officer went to Nelson's house, um, knocked on the door, and talked to someone who they say that they identified as Kit, and the person said that they were fine. Charlotte and Kit's great-grandparents aren't convinced that it really was Kit that answered the door. They think it could have been one of Nelson's other daughters or just a guest that was staying there. They think it might have been Nelson. Um, And so a few months later, after still not hearing from Kit for that many months, the OMAC school district disenrolled Kit from high school. And that was in January of 2022. They were disenrolled because they had stopped showing up to school. And again, Kit's friends and family weren't aware of it. And they were in Yakima at the time. And so that that was another instance where a red flag could have been raised and it wasn't. And so almost a year after that November time period, when Kit stops posting on social media, when their friends and family in Yakima suspect they may have gone missing, Amethyst, her grandmother and another friend, end up going to OMAC because Amethyst is so concerned about Kit and their whereabouts. And that's when Amethyst talks to the police department in OMAC, which says, you know, we're not aware of any missing persons case. We have, There isn't a missing persons case filed. They contact Lori, Kit's mother, and Lori says what? Lori said that Kit ran away, which immediately Kit's friends and family were like, that's not possible. They knew Kit to be a really loving and very anxious person. And so they were convinced that if even if they had run away, that they would have told someone about it or made some kind of plan. Another thing that Nelson mentioned was that Kit had run away with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, possibly back to Yakima, which was something that Amethyst was immediately like, that can't be possible. She knew that Kit had come out as asexual and aromantic. So in her mind, there was no way that that could have happened. And despite this insistence by Kit's friends and family that they hadn't run away, 
the case was still reported as a runaway case, and so the police department wasn't investigating it for a few more months. We should say that Lori, the mother's timeline, is also different from Kit's friends and family. Kit's friends and family suspect they've been missing since November 2021. Lori says that they ran away in April of 2022. So there's also this big window of time, this delta between the stories from friends and family who knew Kit and Lori, the mother that they had gone to live with. So what finally prompts OMAC police to open a missing persons case? The OMAC police department says it was because after looking into it more, they realized that there was such a large time lapse between Kit's friends and family not hearing from them and them being reported missing. And so they started looking into it for that reason and the fact that they were like, no teenager could just disappear off of social media. Kit's friends and family think it has more to do with their efforts to raise awareness about Kit's disappearance. Kit's adoptive sister, Charlotte, and Amethyst as well made huge efforts to get the word out about Kit. Um, Charlotte made a Facebook page called Finding Kit that has thousands of followers now. Um, And Charlotte was interviewing people to try to figure out what might have happened. Um, They made missing persons flyers, all of these things. And they think that that effort might have encouraged law enforcement to take the case more seriously. They suspect it was that public pressure. I want to get into more of the details of, of how each agency here, Child Protective Services, the police, schools, failed kit. So let's take these one by one. First off, Child Protective Services and the police had been called to Lori's home dozens of times over the years because of issues with domestic violence, because of allegations of abuse in the home. If CPS and the police were involved with this household, how does Kit, a 16-year-old child, get overlooked? How can Kit disappear with these agencies aware and involved in this home? One issue that comes up a lot in the missing and murdered Indigenous peoples crisis is jurisdiction confusion. And that seems to have played a role here as well. The Colville tribe has its own child protective services and Washington state has child protective services. Colville has its own police department. Um, and Kit was living in OMAC, but also it overlapped with the Colville reservation. And so there's some confusion about who has jurisdiction, which also depends not only on the location that you're in, but whether you're an enrolled tribal member, which Kit was not, but it can add to confusion there as well. And so that that's one reason why this might have fallen through the cracks and why other similar cases fall through the cracks is just because people aren't sure originally who has responsibility for it. I think with domestic violence as well, it's just seen as a more personal problem and like a problem with parenting and with the family. And that was something that the OMEC police department 
explained to me, especially with Kit being reported as a runaway originally, is that it's a, quote, parenting issue. And so in that case, the police weren't getting involved. And that is also something that happens frequently with missing girls of color where they're dismissed as as runaway cases, which sometimes they, they are. Maybe Kit did run away. We can't say for sure, but regardless, it delayed the investigation, um, which is something that can be seen in, in other similar cases as well. Okay, so that's CPS and the police. What about the school? I mean, Kit is going to school and then is suddenly not attending class. How does the school not end up raising red flags Instead, they just disenroll them in January of 2022 after they've missed enough days that the school is no longer eligible for state funding for KIT. How does the school not then report this to law enforcement or to Child Protective Services? They should have taken more steps than they did. Under Washington state law, there's a law called the Becca Bill where schools are supposed to file a truancy petition and refer kids to a community engagement board if they're truant for a certain number of days. And in this case, Kit was not showing up to school, should have been referred to the court and to a local board, but wasn't. And one important piece of context is that at this time it was still the height of the pandemic, basically. And so it was the first time that kids were going back to school in person. And so the school district describes it sort of in that context of chaos of kids coming back to school. Um, A lot of kids weren't weren't going to school at that time. Um, And truancy continues to be an issue there. And so amid that chaos, kids case just, again, fell through the cracks. Washington also has a policy that that school districts have followed for a while, which is to disenroll kids after 20 days in a row of missed school. Because they no longer get state funding for that child after 20 days. Exactly. And so in this case, the OMAC school district, it seems that they just basically automatically disenrolled kit after 20 days they hadn't referred them to the court. They hadn't referred to them to a community engagement board. Kit was kind of forgotten about. And it's something that the district told me they've since taken a closer look at. They're not disenrolling kids after 20 days automatically anymore. So it technically wasn't legal for OMAC school district to not report this, but this was happening a lot at this time, early 2022, still seeing those big effects of kids dropping out of school or not attending school because of the pandemic. And there was confusion around compliance with the law. So it wasn't unusual for a kid to be in the situation that Kit was, where they just stop attending and the school drops them without reporting it. Has that changed since Kit's case, since 2022? I mean, are there state efforts at addressing this? The Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction has made efforts to stop schools from dropping kids after 20 days, and it seems to be making a difference so far. A lot of school districts 
that I spoke to changed their policies at the beginning of this school year. And so they're, instead of automatically withdrawing kids after 20 days, they're putting them in a separate system to keep them enrolled, but to not count them for funding, um, which has been an effort by the state to encourage schools to do that. And so it seems that there are there's progress being made in that area, but some schools that I spoke to also said that that doesn't necessarily mean that kids aren't still falling through the cracks. Um, just because they're still in the system doesn't mean that they're engaged in school. And so it seems that there's more work to be done in that area, um, especially speaking to the Colville tribes and OMAC, um, truancy continues to be an issue and juvenile court doesn't seem to be helping very much. And so they're, they're trying to find ways to keep kids engaged and keep them safe. Yeah, because you would think that school is the one place where a kid cannot disappear without somebody saying something. But in fact, that's what happened in Kit's case, and apparently it's happening in a lot of cases um, where these kids stop attending and then the system loses track. You know, we've talked about the fact that Kit is Indigenous. They are not a member of the Colville Confederated Tribes, the reservation where they were living, um, but they are um, Indigenous on their mom's side. And there is this epidemic that we've talked about of missing and murdered indigenous people across the country, but especially acute in Washington state. What is happening here? I mean, is this, is Kit's situation common? Are law enforcement and other public agencies in these types of cases not being alerted to the missing persons cases? Or are they not responding with appropriate investigations generally? It seems to be both where law enforcement isn't alerted at the outset. And that might be because there are internal family issues or the person is a runaway or something like that. And it's not immediately reported. Another piece of it is when it is reported, a lot of these cases happen in areas where law enforcement might not have the resources and capacity to respond in a really robust manner, which was also true in OMAC. And because of that, cases can lag or just be pushed to the back burner if they're not really immediate because police officers might be responding to shootings or homicides or something like that, that might require more immediate attention. And so both of those things I think in a lot of these cases are causing these investigations to lag. Yeah. And as you talk about in your reporting, it's really that first 48 to 72 hours when people are most likely to be found. And so the fact that a case like Kitts lagged for, you know, months, if not almost a year, that really has an effect on the likelihood of Kit ever being found and ever um, being reunited with their family and friends, which is a devastating reality. Where does Kit's case stand now? The OMAC Police Department is still investigating it, um, still responding to tips, and the FBI is involved as well. Kit's friends and family are still getting the word out as much as possible. They have hope that they will one day 
know what happened to Kit, they're losing hope that they'll find Kit alive, but they are very hopeful that the investigation will go somewhere and that if the word keeps getting out, then they'll they'll know one day what happened to them. But at the moment, it's kind of progressing as it has been where they're waiting, waiting for tips, um, waiting for things to investigate. So we've talked about these systems that failed Kit and failed their family and friends here, the police, Child Protective Services, OMAC schools. Are there any solutions on the horizon for missing Indigenous people or missing kids in general to try to tighten the safety net so that people don't continue to fall through the cracks? It is really complex, and I feel like, as you mentioned, it it does come down to each individual actor and the community as a whole stepping up. Um, One way it was described to me was that it takes a village to raise a child, but it also takes a village to lose a child. And that's what seemed to happen in this case. And so with schools, I think the efforts to address truancy are hopefully going to help in in situations like this. Tribal advocates who I spoke to also think expanding tribal sovereignty could be one way of approaching it. Sometimes tribes don't have the authority to respond to cases, and they also might not have the resources to respond to it. And so one advocate told me that possibly by expanding tribal jurisdiction over these cases, tribes would then have the authority to respond and might also be given more resources to respond. Um, And she described it to me as for tribes, kids are their future. Um, It has a lot to do with their carrying on culture and things like that. Um, And so in some cases, they just might have more of a stake in the issue. And so some advocates say that expanding tribal jurisdiction could be one possible solution. Kelsey, I keep coming back to Kit's great-grandparents who are suffering, knowing that they are missing their grandchild. Of course, there were so many ways in which adults failed this kid. Um, the police, Child Protective Services, um, the school. I also just keep coming back to the fact that it had to be another child, Amethyst McCart, the friend, childhood friend of Kit, who had to convince her grandmother to <laughs> drive her hours Um, to OMAC from Yakima in order to jumpstart this case, just knowing that they hadn't, she hadn't heard from her friend, going to the police department, asking around. Um, Is there anything else that you learned reporting this out that is a takeaway for somebody who's just throwing up their hands and saying, wow, this system is so broken that we fail kids like Kit and that they can literally disappear out from under our noses without anybody being alerted. And and another child has to be the one to actually start the investigation. I think just taking responsibility as a community to look after kids like Kit. In this case, it was their friend who was the one who realized that they were gone and went to these this large effort to go find them. But it could have been anyone else. It could have been other members of the community that had stepped up and done this and 
possibly if that had been done earlier, the case wouldn't have lagged for so long. And I think it doesn't necessarily have to be a very formal process either. Like it can be like a grassroots effort to raise awareness of the fact that that this person is missing. And we have seen that in Kit's case with their family and friends making this Facebook page and making these large efforts to raise awareness about Kit's case. And so it got there eventually. And we see that a lot in other missing and murdered Indigenous peoples cases where law enforcement is slow on the uptake and it ends up being the families that kind of are spreading the word about it. If community members are looking out for those red flags more, then those efforts could happen perhaps faster or it doesn't have to rely on a grieving family to take up the case if other people are also keeping an eye out for it. So I really think it is everyone. Like it's not only law enforcement and CPS and schools. Obviously they play a role. They're three of the main agencies that keep an eye on kids in this country, but it everyone can play a role. And I think that stood out to me from talking to Kit's friends and family. Kelsey Turner is an investigative reporter with Investigate West, which is a nonprofit investigative journalism newsroom focused on the Pacific Northwest and Cascadia. And her story on Kit Nelson Mora is called An Indigenous Teen in Washington Disappeared Amid Clear Signs of Danger. It took more than a year before police started investigating. Kelsey, thank you very much for your reporting and for being here today. Thank you. And Kelsey's reporting on Kit and the issue of school districts disenrolling students is all available on Investigate West's website, which is invw.org. Thanks for listening to Soundside. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.